always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Also, virtuoso work by our boy Randy, finally fixing up that open. So good to see he's been listing the last couple weeks as we've been bashing that. But it sounds spectacular. There's no question about that. Great to have you here with us on Cinephile. My man Dan Stanzik back from Lake Winnipesaukee. He's refreshed. I'm energized. And away we go. Coming up today, very special. We're going to have Vigo Mortensen, star of the new film Captain Fantastic. I've seen it. I'll review it after you hear the interview. Also an interview with Ron Shelton, Academy Award-nominated Writer and director, he talks about Bull Durham, that famous speech, also the movie Cobb, the revisionist history around Ty Cobb, and sports films in general. So what we're going to do is we'll play those interviews for you first. You'll hear about Vigo Mortensen, a tremendous story about working with Al Pacino on Carlito's Way, how Aragorn and Lord of the Rings affected him, also Eastern Promises, History of Violence, working with Cronenberg, and his new film, Captain Fantastic. You'll hear that first, then we'll come back and do an actor's showcase of Vigo. Take a listen. Joining us now is the star of Captain Fantastic, Vigo Mortensen. Vigo, watch the film. I'm going to give my review a little bit later on here on this podcast, but I was struck by something about the film and you and your acting, and one of my all-time favorite actors is Robert Mitchum, and he's yeah. the emblem of masculinity and all those great film noirs and had that great taciturn approach. And in many ways, you remind me of Mitchum. I don't know if many others have made that connection, but the fact that you always have this rugged masculinity to you, uh, our taciturn, and I think it's a real skill because you communicate a lot on the screen while saying very little, and Captain Fantastic is another example of that. Have you ever thought about your style in relation to Mitchum or had that kind of uh, praise given to you? I, I hadn't, but I admire him a great deal, so I'm really flattered by what you're saying. I like his you know, economical acting style and the fact that he, uh, like you say, he gets a, just with a look, he gets so much across. I don't know if audiences have probably seen Martin Scorsese's version of Cape Fear with Robert De Niro and Nick Nolte and Jessica Lang where this you know, this uh, sociopath is chasing them and threatening to do all kinds of horrible mayhem to them. But it's based on a, a movie from I don't know, around 1960 I guess it came out or something, where Robert Mitchum played the sociopath and in the De Niro version of the character, he's really over the top and he's really scary. Uh, but in the original black and white one, Mitchum is much scarier and he does a lot less. You know, he just his presence, the way he plays that character. So, yeah, he's one one of those actors I've I've admired for a long time. Well, with regards to Captain Fantastic, Vigo, I think it's such a topical film because I I know you have a 28 year old son. Uh, I have two boys mm-hmm. myself, eight and five, and everywhere we're walking. Everyone's just staring at their phones the whole time, and there's no communication. And uh, for those that aren't aware mm-hmm. what the plot of this film is, it's about a father who's got his six kids and raising them away from everybody. And, well, you know, raising them in the wilderness, and uh, he's got them sequestered. And I think it's, you know, like I said, very relevant to today's society in which everybody is so disconnected. What, what attracted you to the material? Was it that specifically how people are disconnected, and this guy's trying to do his best to keep his kids the way that they should be? Well, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I thought that when I first read the script— and I thought it while we were making it, uh, that it's about this, that we're not communicating, we're not listening to each other, that we're each in our little, you know, compartments. And if we're using technology generally just to reinforce things we already are interested in or ideas we already believe in, rather than using the technology to find out what other people think, people are different than we are. I think 
I don't know, there is a communication problem in the country right now, and it's not just the politicians and the media that are making it seem that way. It really, there is something going on that, that's a problem. So now that the movie's out, and when I watch the movie with audiences, I, I really feel that it's it's about that. But no, it wasn't that it was topical or felt like it was. When I read the script, I just thought, this is one of the best stories I've read in in many years, if not ever. It's so complete, it's so well-structured, and my only worry when I read it was, um, well, first I was wondering, what's that mean, Captain Fantastic? What's, what's the title mean? Then as I was reading it about halfway through, I thought, well, you could put a question mark after it because it's a movie that, among other things, that asks the question, well, what is, can you be a perfect parent or uh, is this father that play, is he fantastic or is he a menace to society? You know, he's pretty extreme in his child-rearing methods, I guess. And uh, I just thought, this is a great script. And we're going to have to find, you know, I have six kids from the age of seven to 18. And when I said to the director, well, it's going to be a good movie no matter what because it's such a good script, great script. But for it to be a great movie, you got to have to find six geniuses who are also top-notch athletes that can do martial arts, that can you know, do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, where are you going to find them? And he goes, oh, we'll find them, we'll find them. He was really optimistic. But I figured, you know, maybe you'll find two or three out of six that are great and the other ones are okay. He found six that were incredible. I and mean, when you see this movie, well, you've seen it. Um, I mean, aren't those kids incredible? They're just, <laughs> blow your mind, intelligent and, you know, in great shape and really, they're, just, they're amazing. There's two scenes in particular that really stood out to me. Uh, one is when you're on the bus and <laughs> you tell your daughter to explain what Lolita is about. And I love the fact, by the yeah. way, you, you call on it for using the word interesting, which is another word I hate that people use way too much. And I think it means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a way to buy time. Yeah, I, don't I think hadn't thought of that before, but ever since doing the movie, every time I say, when someone says, well, what was that? What was the movie like? Or, or you know, what was such, such and such like? And, and I stop when I'm going to say, it was interesting. Because it's kind of neither here nor there. It's like it's a bullshit word. It's kind of a crutch. So, so it makes me look for a different adjective, which is which is good for you. It's an obstacle that uh, yeah. I feel I have now. You know, in the movie. But what, another thing that's great about the movie is that not only does it make you think about what's going on in society, but it it's actually it's really dramatic, unexpectedly funny as hell sometimes, and sometimes really moving and kind of disturbing. It makes you as an audience member. At moments, you think, God, I'm a lazy pig, or everything I'm doing is wrong. These people are superhuman, and then you think, no, they're crazy. I mean, you go, it has everything in it. We're talking with Vigo Mortensen, by the way, star of uh, Captain Fantastic, the cinephile podcast here on ESPN. The, the fact that at times I find the character admirable because he mm. is so true to his convictions, but at the same time, the scene where he's with Steve Zahn and his spouse, and he starts talking about what happens to a member of the family, and he's going into way too much detail. And, and the character says, listen, you don't say that to me. information, and I, yeah. Yeah, it's like a and I'm like, no, well, on the one hand, I admire what this guy's doing, but on the other hand, he, he doesn't get it, that you do have to have certain restraint. You do shield your kids from certain mm-hmm. things until there's something called being age-appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the basic foundation, as crazy as the family situation might seem, the basic foundation is, is absolute honesty, constant curiosity and open dialogue with your kids. In other words, a six-year-old asks you, what's rape or what's sexual intercourse? You tell them in great detail. Well, maybe not. It shouldn't be so much detail. <laughs> you know? 
or what happened to mom? Oh, she killed herself. She's dead, you know. We're moving on. It's like too much information. Um, maybe you could have said that in a more general way. I mean, the, the idea of being completely honest with your kids, I think, is great because the kids have a very healthy, uh, let's say, attitude toward illness and death and sexuality, and, and they're not, you know, nudity. And so it's we're kind of it's kind of healthy in some ways, but when they're out in society, you know, they're on a campsite and they're running around like that. It's kind of shocking to people and, and maybe not the best judgment. So what's great about the character at Clay and mostly authority kind of characters, grandparents, they're all flawed. You know, they, they, they have to make adjustments. I think that's what's great about the story is that it, it speaks to the value of, not being stuck in your ways, no matter how open and free you think you are, you can always make improvements and you can adapt and make compromises with people. You know, you can't have it all your way, basically, uh, no matter who you are and where you're coming from politically. It's like, let's try to collaborate with people and, and take take the best of what they're offering and, and, their, and listen to their objections, ways of doing things. I wish politicians would do a little more of that, <laughs> cooperate better, you know. So. But yeah, yeah, it's a no, it's a good story. It leaves you thinking about it. It's one of those movies that when it finishes you go, Now what's gonna happen? Because you care about what happened and and it's believable and, and thought provoking, so you're thinking, Jesus, that's a hell of a story and now what are they gonna do? You know what I mean? I like stories that end that way where you you're left with something to really chew on. Yeah, when I look at your career and some of the choices you've made, uh that's what I like is the fact you challenge yourself as an actor. Like we'll we'll get into Lord of the Rings in just a second, but I love the three films you made with David Cronenberg. Maybe, listen, I'm Canadian. I'm partial to Cronenberg, and I know his work you know, even before, I think, Americans and, and worldwide audiences were aware. But, I mean, it's particularly the one-two punch, uh, the history of violence in Eastern Promises, I don't think anybody saw that coming. And, again, the way that you were able to play guys who were so malevolent and so menacing, uh, to me, it kind of showed a different tool in your tool button. A lot of people were unexpected. What was it like making those films with Cronenberg? Well, I love working with him and his crew, and they're great. I would say the only downside, mostly for them, not for me, was that, you know, they're Toronto-based, and since I'm a Montreal Canadian fan, it was a problem for them because I'd show up wearing a sweater <laughs> so often. Oh, no, Montreal-Toronto rivalry. Yeah, once I, I wore one day, I came home with a T-shirt, a Habs T-shirt, and they were all booing me, and we weren't doing rehearsals, you know, before we got our costumes on. We'd come in fresh with a cup of coffee. Let's rehearse the scene before we all getting our outfits and stuff. And I had a T-shirt on. I don't know what it was. I think it had uh, Yvonne Cornway or something like that. Yeah. T-shirt. Rocket Richard, yeah. perhaps. It's something like that. And they were booing booing me. And I was like, what's the matter, you guys? And they're just they're pointing at my shirt. And I go, oh, yeah, we're in Toronto. Okay. And then I said, okay, I can either go one of two ways. I can just, like, never wear any, you know, Canadian gear. Or I can do it every Thursday. Thursday we had day where <laughs> so that's what I did. And any time I had a scene, especially scenes with violence, uh, where I was off camera, I would I would don the full sweater, the full Gilafleur number ten, and they a lot of hissing and booing. But they had to be quiet during each take. You know, it was just between takes they would yell at me and stuff. But that was fun. So that became a tradition. I did that on all three movies with them. No, but on the plus side, he's got he's got a great team. He's a great director, and he's always challenging himself and his actors. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have worked with him. And I feel similar about Matt Ross, the guy who directed Captain Fantastic. These are guys who are there's no yelling on the set. It's calm, it's professional, and you have a lot of fun. You know, he's he did something really difficult with Captain Fantastic. It's an independent movie, 
a road movie, complicated, you know, with a limited schedule, and you got kids, little kids who have legally very few hours they can work each day. So he had to be really efficient and and be calm and talk to kids in a way that he could get good performances out of them. So it's it's rare when you find directors who are that calm and that confident and really know how to help you as an actor. I've, I've been lucky. I've worked with some good directors, and those are two of the best, I would say, David Cronenberg and Matt Ross. Yeah, one of those directors, of course, is Peter Jackson. And, you know, playing the role of yeah. Aragorn, I, I can't imagine – how it was for you because it was an exhaustive shooting schedule. Um, it catapulted all of you to superstardom, and I can imagine that was not only gratifying and certainly rewarding, but may have been difficult in that being typecast or only being known for a certain role. How do you view that entire experience of Lord of the Rings? It was a great piece of uh, good fortune, you know, to be trusted with the role of Aragorn in that, in that trilogy. I mean, it was a super long shoot. It was. I mean, it was years before we were finished making all the pieces of all three movies. And we got to know each other really well. I get together with some of the actors often, and we maintained a strong bond since making those movies. And obviously, like you said, because they were so successful, everybody involved in them had opportunities. And uh, I never never worried about – I mean, it never bothers me that, that people bring that movie up or people want pictures from that movie signed or anything. I think it's uh, flattering. You know, I, I, I would have never been able to been allowed to make those three movies playing lead roles in, in David Cronenberg's movies if it hadn't been for the success of Lord of the Rings, for example. I don't know if I would have been interested with the lead in Captain Fantastic if it hadn't been for the success of Lord of the Rings. So I'll always, I'll forever be grateful to Peter Jackson for not only making that great trilogy, but, but for letting me, you know, be part of it. And like I said, before that catapulted you to superstardom, you know, obviously you were a, a working actor and you were successful, but it was a matter of, you know, people kind of knowing you from certain roles. To me, it's always like a situation where you see an actor and go, it's that guy. And I was reminded going through your filmography how much I loved you in Carlito's Way. That great oh, yeah, scene. With, oh, that's great scene. With, and you played it so well because you're with Pacino, who is my all-time favorite actor. I met him a couple yeah. months ago and he could not have been more gracious. So I couldn't imagine, you know, I was starstruck beating him for 10 seconds. You're actually playing a role opposite yeah. him. But my friends and I, I was 14 when we saw it. We just loved the way your character's trying to be so crafty and cunning. And then when Pacino calls one, he's like, oh, listen, like, he's just so pathetic. Oh, I can't walk. I can't uh, yeah. What more do you no, want from me, sniveling, man? Sniveling, <laughs> traitor, and coward. It was a great role. It was a great role. I, I remember, um, you know, shortly, maybe a year or two after that movie came out, I remember I was watching, I was in Los Angeles, you know, where my kid grew up. And uh, I, I was watching a, uh, a kid's soccer game. You know, little kids are like about six, seven years old. And there was a father that was yelling at his kid, you know, one of his parents, these hideous parents who were screaming and yelling at the kids and at the ref and just a nuisance. You see it in, you know, soccer and hockey games where you just want to kill the father or just ban him from coming <laughs> to the game. And he was screaming, and he was Hispanic, so he was going, come on, get the ball, Julalin, Julalin. And Lalin was the name of my character, was this loser, you know, just no good, you know, bastard in the movie. That character I played, Carly, was, he was calling his kid Lalin. You know, like, <laughs> you're being like a character. He's, you know, he's a poor kid, like six years old, and he's probably staring at the clouds going by or something, and the ball goes through his legs. And the kid obviously wasn't meant to be a soccer star. He didn't really give a shit. He was having a nice 
day out in the sun, and and the father was yelling at him, you know, to, to defend, to try to you know get the ball away from the attacking player, and uh, the kid didn't care, and so he was calling him Laleen. I felt bad for the kid, but I thought, wow, that that character really is remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's great. What, what was it like specifically? Not only Pacino working with De Palma, who was a legendary director. It was, yeah. I mean, I liked working with Al Pacino a lot. He was very generous. He actually has a very good sense of humor. And uh, I remember in the scene, I'm in a wheelchair and I have my little bag of playing this sort of Puerto Rican character. And, uh, and I'm yelling at him, trying to make excuses for why I ratted him out. And I'm saying, look at me. I can't do, I can't dance anymore. I can't hump. I, I got to wear diapers, and I pull this diaper out of my bag, and I throw it at him. Well, and I didn't mean to throw it at him, but it, it, I was throwing it in the air just as, like in a fit of, you know, desperation. And and it actually landed on his nose and just hung there. And to his <laughs> oh, credit, my goodness. He continued saying the dialogue, just stood there really calm with a diaper hanging off his nose and finished the scene. And then and then Brian DeFama sort of laughed, and he goes, cut. And then Pacino's like, I hope you'll use that take. I think that was the good one, Brian. And, but obviously he didn't use that take. But I thought, well, that's a cool guy. He didn't get annoyed. He didn't get embarrassed. He just finished the scene and let the diaper hang off his face. And, uh, it was a clean diaper, by the way. Yeah, I'm never, I'm never going to be able to watch that scene again now. Imagine the take where the diaper <laughs> was hanging off Chino's face. Yeah, he was, he was, there. He was a good sport. So, no, but, I, you know, you learn. That's... That's where you learn the most in the business and in, in doing it and working with, you know, a pro like that with all that experience. He was just such a good listener. You could feel like in the scene when you're talking to him that he was taking in everything you were doing and saying. And I think that's the foundation of, of the best acting is reacting, you know, really listening and taking your cues from the other performer, not coming in with some way of doing your part all prepared and not listening to the other actor, you might do a good job that way, but it's going to be better if you bounce off the other person and sort of improvise a little bit based on that. Be the master at that. Last one for you. I'm originally, I, I was born in Toronto, but I grew up in Kingston, which in America nobody knows where that is, and my cousin was so excited about the recent Esquire article on Eagles, you'll never believe this. Vigo Mortensen has a connection to Watertown, New York. We're like, what? And then I read the article, not only Watertown, but there's a mention of, like, St. Lawrence College, which is where my mom went back to school to get a degree, and, like, Wolf Island Ferries. You understand how yeah. – I don't know why this is like this, but I don't know why my people like me would get so excited where famous people have roots to me, but I just never would have expected, hey, Beagle Mortensen is a connection to Watertown, New York. Well, you went to college right across the water from each other, right across the border from each other. So are you a, are you a Leafs fan, or – well, this is the thing. I grew up right in that area, and this is you'll never believe this. I didn't grow up a Leafs fan because my brother was a big Oilers fan. He loved Gretzky and those great teams of the 80s. Oh, yeah, so, sure. So the Flyers played the Oilers in 85 and 87. So naturally being brothers and sibling rivalry, I became a Flyers fan, which people can never understand. They go, how can you be a Canadian and you're a Flyers fan? <laughs> well, they had those great teams in the 70s. I remember when I was in high school with Bobby Clark and the Broad Street Bullies and they took the measure of a great Montreal team, among other teams, during that period. And, uh, yeah, they were tough. It was a good team. They got great oh, fans down there in Philadelphia, that's for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt. The, the Broad Street Bullies certainly have that passion now, years from now. Uh, Vigo Morrison, mm. the star of the new film, Captain Fantastic. Make sure you check it out in theaters. Thanks so much, man, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice talking with you. Actors Showcase.
Vigo Mortensen, what do you think, Stan? He's a pretty entertaining guy. Obviously very passionate about Captain Fantastic. Yeah, your phone quality sounded great. <laughs> Over there at Musquamacan. Had a good time there at the beach. All right. Um, we'll do a quick actor showcase before we get to Ron Shelton. He's coming up next. The three best films for Vigo Mortensen's career. Uh, number three, I think you have to go with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I know that's a cheat. I'm not picking one film. If you want to pick one, I'll go Fellowship of the King. But just his entire work there is Aragorn, so rugged and so uh, masculine. As I mentioned there in that interview with him, I think he really he nails those qualities specifically. And it really is, you know, Lord of the Rings is a film that's dependent upon the great special effects and the character arc, but he actually is a really good actor. And I think he and Ian McKellen in particular really give that film some, some heavyweight acting talent. Number two, A History of Violence. This is what I credit him for because, yeah, after that movie with Lord of the Rings had this gigantic success, he could have made more of these types of movies. He could have become like an action star, but instead decides to hook up with David Cronenberg, the great Canadian director, and make a couple of crime films, which were outstanding. A History of Violence, if you haven't seen it, check it out himself. Maria Bello, Ed Harris, um, plays a guy who's trying to escape his past and then gets drawn back into that world, but exceptionally well done. And the number one is Eastern Promises for me, plays a gangster. Uh, he was actually nominated for an Oscar and the Screen Actors Guild Award. He actually told the story on the Alec Baldwin podcast. Here's the thing. He took his mom to the Screen Actors. I know. Don't listen to that one. Just listen to our podcast. You can listen to that another time. But he told the story about taking his mom to the Screen Actors Guild Award. And she was like, oh, my God, it's John Travolta. And he's like, yeah, Mom, go ahead. Talk to me. Talk to everybody you want here. Eastern Promises, though, playing this gangster, just ruthless. And just, it's funny. When I interviewed him, a lot of people asked about Viggo Mortensen. They said, does he have an accent? And I said, why would you say that? And they go, well, I've just seen him in Eastern Promises and other films. I just assume, like, he has a strong accent. I'm like, no, he's an American guy. He grew up Watertown, New York, right where I am, Kingston, Kingston, Ontario. Yeah, but his so. name's Vigo. I know. I, I can see why people would think that. But it's a credit to how good he is in Eastern Promises that he plays this, this Russian gangster as well as he does. So three great films of Vigo Mortensen, along with Captain Fantastic, that you can check out. Eastern Promises, A History of Violence, and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Coming up next, Ron Shelton, the Academy Award-nominated writer-director of Bull Durham. He talks about the new film Spaceman, of which he is the executive producer. Joining us now is Academy Award-nominated film director and screenwriter Ron Shelton. You know many of his films like Bull Durham, White Man Can't Jump, Cobb, Tin Cup, and now he's the executive producer of this new film, Spaceman, which is about Bill Lee. Ron, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile today. First off, what was it that attracted you to this picture? You've made so many sports movies. You're known uh, for being a guy who knows the terrain as well as anybody. What was it about Spaceman that attracted you to be the executive producer of the project? Well, I love Bill Lee. You know, I... I'm a little sort of his era of a player, and I'm from Southern California. And uh, I can tell you that back in the 60s and 70s, if you were a little different, you were looked down on, and Bill was a lot different. <laughs> and, uh, that was one of the shocks, I think, when I signed a professional contract with the Orioles to discover that you were, a player was supposed to be in a, kind of fit into a mold. And coming from Southern California, where nobody, you know, the mold was whatever you wanted to be, it was, it was a little bit shocking. And uh, Bill didn't care; he just, you know, played it by his rules and, and listened to his own drummer, and he's still doing it. Yeah, it's interesting because it all depends on perspective. If you like a guy who's colorful and fun, then you have to love and appreciate Bill Lee because. Sometimes what gets lost is amidst the eccentricities and the great sound bites and all the humor is he was a really good pitcher. And as the, the film illustrates, he did not have uh, a 95 mile an hour fastball. Like he, was, he would say, listen, I'm throwing junk all the time, man. And he was on a Red Sox team that was in the World Series. And I think people don't appreciate how good he was. And the guys that were his detractors were focusing on the wrong things. Like, who cares if the guy wants to smoke weed? Like, he's a good pitcher and he's a funny guy. 
Well, and decades later, everybody smoked weed in, in sports. So, you know, and, and he had political opinions. And But I'm glad you point that out. He won, what, 120-something games for the Red Sox? And uh, I mean, he was one of their, I think, one of the one or two top left-handed pitchers in Red Sox history. So people forget how good he was. He was an All-American, I think, at USC. He did have a good tailing fastball when he started out, but uh, – he was a one-off, and uh, that's why I was attracted to the project. The film itself is interesting because it's very clear that you guys didn't have a ton of money putting this together, and yet I don't think it's uh, necessarily an issue because of the fact it's a character study. So Josh does such a terrific job in portraying the character, and you know he's finding it. And the film is not showing his rise and fall, per se. It's not a traditional trajectory when it comes to sports biopic. It's showing later in life how he's trying to get – you know, just he loves the game so much, and, you know, his personal relationships. And being Canadian myself, being from Toronto, I love seeing all the old Expo stuff and, and the ties to Montreal and the depiction of French Canada. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think because of money limitations, Brett Rapkin, the writer-director, correctly chose to just pick a moment in his life. And the moment is when he crossed management one too many times for the Expos and got released, and nobody wanted him because he was considered trouble which was a big mistake because he was the most competitive pitcher you know, out there. And I think uh, this tracks his inability to find his job in the big leagues and him settling into sort of Sunday afternoon semi-pro <laughs> league in French Canada and finding happiness there. So I think in that regard, you're right. It's a snapshot. It's a moment. It's like a, a miniature, a short story of, of Bill Bill's career that captures everything he was about. And, uh, and you know, for the limited money, that's that's the only way to do it. And I think it's, he did a heck of a job. Talk with acclaimed writer-director Ron Shelton, who's the executive producer of the new film Spaceman. It's quite a resume, Ron. Like I said, when you think about sports movies, the first thing that comes to mind is yours. And Bull Durham still endures. I'm one of the hosts of Baseball Tonight. And whenever I talk to these guys about baseball movies, that I think they got it right. They always mention your film, Bull Durham. And... I think that the the part of it is because of the fact maybe you played minor league baseball, the Orioles, so you really you know the smells and the sights and the sounds and the dialogue. And what does it say to you that it, it has endured so many years after coming out back in 1988? Well, that, that you know it's very gratifying because you don't know if it's going to last till from Friday to Monday when it opens. <laughs> and, uh, you know when those references are made or white men can't jump. You know you feel like maybe you've made a splash in the water. So. I think that's the most gratifying thing of this gnarly business I'm in. The famous speech that Costner gives, how many takes, how much uh, effort went into writing that dialogue? How much of it was ad-libbed? I wrote it as fast as I could type. One, like I wrote it in 20 seconds, uh, and he did one take. I'm not joking. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Like, that's one of the most famous scenes of any sports film ever, and you're telling me Costner nailed that one take. Well, we didn't have time for two, honestly. There wasn't a lot of money for that movie either. But, uh, I mean, more than poor Brad had on Spaceman. But, no, I typed, I wrote it really fast. I thought, well, I'll put a big stupid speech in here, and the movie star will like it. And it'll never make the cut. And then we did one take, and I remember Kevin said, don't I get another take? I said, no, we're moving on. <laughs> and then it became, it became famous. So you never know. Can you still recite it? Yeah, but not on, is this an R-rated TV show? Yeah, no, we can bleep it out. <laughs> Give it to us. No, I can't do it. I I uh I know I know the beginning. I believe well, <laughs> give me as much as you can. Yeah. Well, you know, this all the and the and after that I I fog up. Uh, 
<laughs> Long, slow, you know, we're, doing, we're doing a musical uh, that opens next spring in New York. Of uh, We've been developing for seven years of Bull Durham, the musical. And the speech is in it, but we had to we had to make it a little more PG thirteen for the for the musical theater crowd. <laughs> a little different than Hamilton, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, we got you know we got an R rated musical, and after Hamilton and Book of Mormon, you know all bets are off. <laughs> but all those busloads of of old ladies from uh, Iowa coming to see the theater, we thought eh, maybe we shouldn't start off with soul. <laughs> and- <laughs> You'd get our vote. I mean, maybe that's just our sense of humor over here at ESPN. <laughs> We'd be all in for that. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about Cobb because I think it's a really underrated film, and I know it didn't do very well commercially, and it got mixed reviews critically, but I thought Tommy Lee Jones was extraordinary, and I thought that the way that you adapted that book um, you know, by Terrence Stump, and yeah. obviously Robert Wolf plays the writer, there, there's a wonderful scene in there where Cobb is at the Hall of Fame, and you know they're meant to show all the highlights of his career. Instead, he's seeing just what a horrible scoundrel that he was. There was a book that came out last year. It's a biography about Cobb, and and it goes back and tries to argue that he wasn't really as much of a villain as people think, that it's kind of built up over time. How did you deal with the mythology of Cobb and trying to make uh, not only an authentic film, but also one that you thought was true to what Ty Cobb was? Well, thank you. I'm very proud of Cobb, and and it's funny because half the critics thought it was great, and other half hated it. It was, I've never made a movie that polarized people, and if you read the the best reviews, you'd have thought it was a, it won three Academy Awards, and then you read the other reviews and thought I was being hung up, you know, uh, hung by my bootstrap somewhere. But uh, look, I'm proud of the movie. I stand by the movie. I think Tommy was great. I'm working with him in a movie right now. I'm having lunch with him today, by the way. And there is the book, the Charles Learson book you're referring to. There is a movement to kind of reinvent Cobb's legacy and i think it's completely bogus and i said that to the new york times and anybody else that asked me we researched our movie it was based on many books much research i mean people like ken burns they, they agree with me people like every biographer agrees with me except the recent one and some of the most credible sources in baseball history told me stories that were more chilling than they than have ever been put into print so i think it's just complete revisionism you know, somebody just wrote a, a book that Hitler was misunderstood. I, I mean, Cobb was a bad guy. He was also a really smart guy, which we point out. We also say he had a reason for his troubles. His, his uh, you know, his father was murdered by either his mother or his mother's lover, and he lived with that his whole life. That was this dark secret, and it twisted him. And he used that sort of inner rage on the ball field. So there are things about the man that I admired. But to say that he didn't have demons coming out of every pore is simply a betrayal of history. Well said. We're talking Academy Award-nominated writer-director Ron Shelton, the new film Spaceman. He's an executive producer of it. Another underrated picture is The Best of Times. I remember seeing that with Robin Williams and Kurt Russell uh, playing former football teammates. I hope people still mention that movie to you, too, because I thought it was very funny and very endearing. What was it like working with Robin and, and Kurt particularly? Well, they were great, and I later worked with Kurt on a on a bad cop movie called Dark Blue that I'm proud of. I love Kurt Russell. It was very sad at the passing of Robin. Uh, Best of Times was based on a story from my own high school. I didn't direct it. Uh, I wrote it, and uh, what they call directed the second unit on it, where my high school and, 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 and its rival high school, I, somebody told me, because I don't live in the town that I grew up in, said that 
a while ago that they were having an alumni football game, and I said, well, that's ridiculous. They said, no, there's a, they want to settle a score from, like, 1973 or something. And so all these, like, 45-year-old guys got in shape, and they and 10,000 people came, and you can't get, like, 1,500 to a high school game. And I thought, there's something here. If the whole town is invested in settling a score and more people come out to see 45-year-old fat guys play. <laughs> um, so that was – kind of the background of that, and um, I, I appreciate you mentioning it. You were a minor league baseball player in the Orioles organization from 1967 to 71, so I, I guess you didn't quite cross paths with Earl Weaver, but who was uh, some players that you well, may play with Earl, the Well, Earl was the man, and, you know, I played in winter ball, and he and his staff came down. Cal Ripken uh, Sr. was one of our managers, and Cal Ripken Jr. was our bat boy. Nice. Um, but those were the great Orioles teams. You know, for 20 years in that era, the Orioles won more games than anybody in in, in the major leagues. You remember they had four 20-game winners, I think, in 69 or 70. In one season, they had four 20-game winners, if you can yeah, believe Palmer, that. McNally, Cuellar, they're amazing. And Pat Dobson. And, you know, they had uh, Brooks Robinson and Frank Robinson, two Hall of Famers. Boog Powell. I mean, it was a, uh, David Johnson, Mark Belanger. I mean, it was just a stag and Paul Blair, great benches. They had guys on their bench who would have started for anybody else. So it was a great organization. It was a classy organization. Um, I was proud to be part of it. I played through AAA in Rochester, New York, not far from Toronto. And nice. uh, it was the strike of 72 was what caused me to retire because a lot of guys in my position couldn't, and set out the strike. We thought the season was going to be canceled, and so that's kind of when I hung them up. Yeah, it sounds like with all those players you mentioned, Ron, if it had been a different team with with the depth that was not that quite that astounding, uh, you would have been on in the major leagues, right? Well, I, everybody was trying to get with the Expos because they were terrible. <laughs> Jerry Park. <laughs> we thought we thought our Double A team could beat their Montreal Expos in the Oriole organization, right or wrong. That's what we thought. So. Uh, but, you know, everybody was trying to get traded. But we had Bobby Gritch and Donnie Baylor, and, and we had so many studs on that AAA roster. Great guys. I'm still in touch with them. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was my career in a nutshell. I get to work with Tim Kirchin, so he always has wonderful stories about the Orioles and uh, teams of that era. So I'll pass along some of those names. I'm sure he'll uh... – I would love to meet Tim sometime. I I, I, I... I love his work on television, so uh, tell him hello. He's a phenomenal guy. I'll be seeing him tomorrow, actually, in studio. So you're more than welcome to come to Bristol, Connecticut, yeah. anytime. Tell him, hey, tell, it's not in my usual route, but between <laughs> Santa Monica and the Pacific Palisades. But um, tell him hello. I've actually written him into a script. If it ever gets off the ground, I'll have a job for him. Oh, really? Well, I mean, I, you know, I have a sports uh, announcer thing. And uh, anyway, if, I have a movie set in Latin about Latin baseball, and uh, anyway, just tell Tim hello, though I've not met Well, him. I'll tell you, Ron, he has been bit by the Hollywood bug because I just saw him yesterday, and he told me that he was in – he filmed something. It's, I think, for Funny or Die, and it's with Hank Azaria, and I can't remember the other actress as well, but he he is tempted to get in front of the bright lights here. So if I if I toss this out there, hey, Ron Shelton has a role for you, you might get a call. You might get a visit to Southern California. Uh, his agent will call me and want too much money. I know how it works. <laughs> it's always the agents, Ron. <laughs> I know. I can write him out as fast as I wrote him. 
Buster Olney will be ready to jump in, or Jason Stark. Uh, Ron Shelton, who is the acclaimed writer and director of so many great films. I wish we had more time. We could have talked about White Men Can't Jump, Tin Cup, and many others. But best of luck with Spaceman. I've seen the film. I encourage it for all to see. Uh, coming out in theaters, you're the executive producer of that film. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us here on Cinephile. My pleasure. All right, Ron Shelton, great stuff from him. Let's talk about that movie, Spaceman. So if you're a baseball fan, you know about Bill Lee and the journey that he was on, the fact he was this wild, eccentric guy, but actually was a really good pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. The movie is interesting because they don't focus really on any of that. It's kind of like they tell that in sequence, almost like there's a montage of here's what he did with regards to the World Series and being a good baseball pitcher. You know, had some great seasons. But the movie starring Josh Duhamel focuses on what happens during the end of his career, the fact he's still trying to hang on into baseball. And I'm actually, I have a quote in the blurb of the film. If you check out a trailer for Space Band, you should see my blurb there, which I called a baseball Big Lebowski. And the reasoning is, Dumel, the way he plays it, I, I don't really know his work that well. We're going to hopefully have him on Cinephile on the next podcast. But he really plays Lee with this uh, wonderful sense of oddball charm and this goofy eccentricity. And the way that it reminded me of the Big Lebowski is that, obviously, a great stoner comedy. And the fact that Billy, you know... Loves to smoke his joints. And he looks at the world with a very skewed vision, much like the dude does in The Big Lebowski. So much like Lebowski is on his own journey, so is Spaceman. And Spaceman's journey is to try to get back to baseball. But the movie focuses on when he's playing in a semi-pro league, uh, when he's in Montreal and playing with some guys and just trying to hang on, and also the relationship between himself and his family as well. And I think that, you know, for a lot of films, when you look at athletic biographies, you're focusing on, their achievements, and all the highs. And what they're doing here is kind of an interesting aspect, which is that just show his career towards the end of his life but focus more on the human rather than his playing career. And I think if you're a baseball fan, you know enough about Bill Lee and you know that his journey. And so I thought Dumel really did a convincing job of playing him. Again, much like the movie that we reviewed previously, The Phenom, not many baseball scenes. Uh, there's a few of them. And like I said, it's semi-pro, so the guys are thrown. They're not meant to be throwing 90. They look like they're throwing 50. So <laughs> if you're, if you're going to question uh, baseball authenticity, not strong with regards to that. But I give Spaceman three Maple Leafs. I think it's a, a very likable comedy, warm slice of life. Like I said, credit to Ron Shelton, and we hope to have Josh Duhamel on the next episode of Cinephile. The other film that we're reviewing is Captain Fantastic. We talked to Viggo Mortensen earlier. Uh, this really should be Stanzik's life because it's a story about six kids, Stanzik one of six, and how they're living in <laughs> isolated from the world, which is also Stanzik's life, because he just spent a week at Lake Winnipesaukee with his sisters and his parents. And I think that it's a real allegory for the way the world has shifted and the way so many people now communicate with their phones and Instagram and Snapchat and texting, and, and no one's actually looking at each other and having a real conversation. And Viggo Mortensen's character, Captain Fantastic, wants them to really focus on the essential part of life, and that is learning each other and learning about human nature, etc. So they're completely cut off from the world. They're living in the woods here. But they know how to tie a tent. They know how to make a fire. They're, and everything they're learning is through books. They're reading literature. There's one scene, in fact, as we talked with Vigo, where he, you know, he asks his daughter, okay, what's Lolita about? Or, or what's this piece of literature about? And he's trying to teach them all. Now, a family tragedy happens, so that brings them back into the real world. And you can kind of see where this is going. They connect by, you know, paint by dots. Okay, these guys have not acclimated to the world. They don't know how to communicate with people because all they know about the world is through books. You don't know how to have simple human communication. And when you have extremism, whatever part in life, you know, it's open to failure. And while it's commendable that Vigo's saying, listen, I want to remove, you know, as a character, all these technological contrivances upon my family, I want them to just learn and kind of return to the essence of mankind. While that is admirable, he obviously goes too far. You have to be able to live in this world and you have to be able to communicate. So Frank Langella plays the father-in-law who butts heads with him and says, listen, your ideas are folly. I love Frank Langella, by the way. It made me want to go watch Frost Nixon again. He's so great in that movie. 
So Langella, who always has that great voice and steely, authoritarian gaze, you know, kind of telling him, listen, this is the way it should be. This is the way my grandkids should be. And the film develops from there. So without giving away too much, that's the battle uh, between, you know, man and nature. I like the film. Vigo in particular is fantastic. He always is. He's such a great actor. But I did think the third act had some issues and, and a, a poor ending. Dare I say a laughable ending. I, while I was watching the screener, the movie does become unhinged in the last 10 minutes. So I would have probably given it three Maple Leafs stands. I'm going to go two and a half because the ending really was a letdown. Real quick on Langella, our guy. I'm hearing that he once dated Whoopi Goldberg. That is pretty stunning. That is true. Langella, Whoopi Goldberg. That, that may only be taught by the fact one time Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson were dating, and Danson showed up in blackface at an event, and it's like, what are you thinking of the all-time horrific ideas by Ted Danson? Made a comeback in Fargo this year. I enjoyed the second season of the show. But, yeah, when Danson showed up in blackface, go ahead and Google that story. Him and Whoopi. Hey, this will be great. Al Jolson. All right. Let's remind people this horrific episode towards African-Americans. It'll be really funny. A laugh riot. So that's Captain Fantastic. Secret Life of Pets I also saw. I thought it was fine. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs because it's 90 minutes. It's a good time waster. Kids enjoy it. I'm not a pet lover myself. I don't own any pets. But it's very infectious, very charming, very cute. Bunch of dogs. There's a, there's a poodle who John Clayton would love. He digs the heavy metal, getting after it. It's a fairly simple story. Louis C.K. Uh, voices the main character, a dog trying to find his way home. It's kind of an amusing concept, just the fact that what pets do when, you know, parents leave and they just have all these eccentricities and nuances and, and characteristics that most human beings have. So it's kind of a funny idea, and it's sweet. But I'll be honest, for, for kid movie stands, we're lacking an inside out. I gave Finding Dory two and a half Maple Leafs. I'm giving this one three Maple Leafs. Still need a big standout kids film. Haven't had one yet. What about Zootopia? I've heard good things. Zootopia I enjoyed a lot. Actually, I saw that in March. I would have given that three and a half Maple Leafs. That was very good. Jason Bateman, a little more smarter, I think, than the average kids film while still being sweet and delivering the basic message. So those are the three films we're reviewing right now. Secret Life of Pets, I'll give that three Maple Leafs. A two and a half to Captain Fantastic. But check it out for our boy Viggo Mortensen. And I'm also giving Spaceman three Maple Leafs. Streaming suggestions. Yeah, and that is what I was looking for. All right. That transition means it's got to be streaming suggestions right now. So currently on Netflix, I'm recommending An Inconvenient Truth, uh, the Al Gore documentary, very timely, in fact, now with all the talk about climate change and the environment. I found it very eye-opening and enlightening at the time when it came out 10 years ago. The movie I really want to talk about, though, is The Verdict. It's one of the great cry, uh, trial films, I would say, of all time. People often mention A Few Good Men, and that's obviously a great movie. But when you think about lawyers and battling and all those John Grisham films and adaptations, The Verdict, to me, is as good as it gets. Paul Newman plays a character named Frank Galvin, who's an ambulance chaser. He's an alcoholic, and he's pretty much at the end of his rope. The first scene is beautifully shot. Sidney Lumet is the director. The writer is David Mamet, one of his first screenplays. Of course, the writer of Glengarry Glenn Ross. And you just see this guy playing pinball and drinking, and it just it totally fits that vibe of what you see in Boston. You see these guys who are just down on their luck and, and, and losers, and life has passed them by. And it's shot in Boston, the beautiful foliage in the fall, lots of browns and, and greens, and I love the way it's shot because it really has that melancholy feel about it. So Galvin's given one last chance by his buddy. Listen, it's an easy case. You just, you know, it's a really open and shut case, some extra money, and that's it. You can go ahead and drink yourself to death. But Newman sees a glimmer of hope. He sees some idealism, and he wants to challenge the case, and he wants to take it to trial. So you have this familiar formula now of a guy who's down on his luck, a loser, who's trying to overcome his critical Achilles heel, which is his alcoholism, and trying to win the case. So you have two things going on here. One is the actual trial, which is interesting in itself because the plot explains what he's up against. It's about doctors and this malpractice suit. And then you also have the character study of Newman, and he's trying to overcome his own weaknesses to do the right thing. 
And there's a great scene at the end. You know, especially in a, in a lawyer trial film, you're going to have that big speech. And Newman gives that big speech at the end, and it's about hope and doing the right thing. And Lumet shoots it beautifully. He shoots it in a wide shot and just slowly but slowly, just inexorably just moving in just a little bit. You, you can't even really notice it. And at the end, you know, he talks about integrity and truth and reckoning. And so the verdict comes down. By the way, the original film, the Mamet wanted to end it with just that, the speech, and the judge goes, all rise, and that's it. And when the producer read it, he goes, should we just call it the verdict, question mark? Like, what, what the hell is this? Like, the whole movie's called the verdict. Well, what's the verdict? We don't know. Apparently, Mamet was so steamed, he just strew a stream of profanities at the guy and left the room. But they give me a verdict. But what makes the film great is after that. The last shot of the film, Newman's drinking out of a coffee cup, and the woman's calling Charlotte Rampling, who has jilted him. And she wants to atone and call him. And all you see is Newman drinking out of a coffee cup. And it's a beautiful, open-ended shot. It's one of my favorite endings of all time. Because what it's saying is this. Even though he won the case, even though the verdict was there, you know, he's still the same guy, which is this alcoholic who's just never going to be able to recapture his glory. Is it saying that? Is there alcohol in the coffee cup? Or is he drinking coffee and he has achieved redemption? He has redeemed himself. But because of what he's lost in his life and what he's come to, as you see with anybody trying to overcome an addiction, you have that sense of melancholy. Just go ahead and YouTube. If you want to watch the whole film, YouTube the final scene of the verdict. And you tell me if you think Paul Newman is drinking booze out of the cup or if he's drinking coffee. It's on Netflix right now. That's as good as film acting gets and as good as he ever was in his legendary career. Should have won an Oscar for it. He lost to Ben Kingsley for Gandhi. Politically correct movement here. I love Ben Kingsley, and he's great in Gandhi, but I'm telling you, Newman's performance, they gave him the makeup a few years later for The Color of Money. Scorsese, my guy, so I was happy to see it, but honestly, Paul Newman should have won for the verdict. And even he, if you ask him about his films, obviously he's now passed on, but he has said in interviews, as much as people remember me from Butch Cassidy and The Sting, he goes, the verdict to me was, was about as good as it got. Also on Amazon Prime is Inside Lewin Davis, Coen Brothers' film, Kind of missed the mark for some people. Normally, you'd think it gets released late in the year, awards consideration up for Best Picture. Instead, uh, did not get that kind of glory. But the guy who was the star of it, Oscar Isaac, has since become a huge star, appearing in Star Wars and uh, Ex Machina he was great in. So he plays this folk singer who's down on his luck, and he's a real misanthrope, and nobody likes him, and he's got a cat that he's trying to take care of, and his his girl despises him, and he can't get a hit record. And there's a lot of dark humor, as you'd expect with the Coen brothers, but I think it also shows just... The folly of being an artist and of that time of the 50s and 60s. You know, Coen Brothers movies always have great music. It's a fantastic folk music soundtrack, which is not a genre I'm familiar with. But uh, with their films, they always seem to pick out music that will be accessible to everybody. The Hang Me in particular is a song that's really great. So check it inside Lewin Davis. Clockwork Orange, Kubrick Classic. I got LASIK done a couple months ago, so I felt like <laughs> main character in there with my eyes just completely taped open. Just a horrifying image the whole time. I'm like, ah, they're blinding me forever. Just a dark, sadistic film. For people that don't like Stanley Kubrick, they always point to a clock record. They go, I get that he's a great filmmaker, but I just think he's twisted. I just think he enjoys hurting people. I just think he enjoys seeing torture uh, on the screen. And I disagree. I think he is dark, and I do think he goes to levels that most people wouldn't go. But I think there's really intelligence there, and especially if you read the, the book upon which it's based. Uh, from my understanding, it's a faithful adaptation. Marathon Man as well, I will recommend. Uh, Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier. Primarily, I'm recommending it just for this story. Uh, Hoffman in the in the movie plays a marathon runner, and you know he's just exhausted as the film becomes, and more fatigued, and more overwhelmed, and conspiracies, and being chased by the bad guys. So he would run a lot on set, just like our boys dancing. So ten mile runs, twenty mile runs. He'd stay up all night. He just makes sure that he was just so disgusted and and just looked 
so disheveled. So the one scene, Lawrence Olivier, one of the great actors of all time, Lawrence Olivier is there with him, and he plays a dentist. He's got this crazy scene with a drill. He looks at Hoffman, who just looks like a mess of himself, and he's like, what are you doing? And Hoffman's like, well, I'm just, you know, just trying to stay in the character, you know, being a method actor. And <laughs> Olivier, apparently without missing a beat, looks at him and goes, you should try acting. It's a lot easier. <laughs> Sir Lawrence Olivier, Mr. Shakespeare himself. So on Netflix, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, The Verdict, Amazon Prime, Inside Lewin Davis, Clockwork Orange, Marathon Man. We'll be back in a couple weeks. So I'll focus on the HBO Now section. Then I had so many films I wanted to recommend from there. I had to actually ask Stanzik to, to cut it down a little bit. So we'll, we'll review those uh, next time. Until then, I'm Adnan Virk. Special thanks to Britt McHenry, by the way. She was tweeting about the new Bourne movie. So appreciate the fact that Britt's aware of the podcast, hopefully subscribing to Cinephile. I have no interest in the Bourne movies. It's the fifth one. I understand that's the fourth one with Damon. Renner's out of the picture, but just I don't, I don't understand what's new at this point. If, if I have one headline ever with movies, and Sanzik knows this, it's just no more superheroes, no more sequels. Having said that, I'll be reviewing Suicide Squad on the next podcast, August 5th, that comes out. I just want to see what Jared Leto pulls together as the Joker, because he has a lot to live up to with not only Jack Nicholson, but, of course, Heath Ledger. So until then, I'm Adnan Burke, and I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.